First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When the average Canadian watches horrific images from Syria or somewhere, their responses to that are not any different from the average American. The difference is the Canadian can then get up the next day and sponsor someone from Syria. Hello and welcome to Displaced on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Greg Gordon. And I'm Ravi Gurumurthy, and this is the show to listen to if you want to understand the global refugee crisis and the causes and consequences of war. In our day jobs, we work at the International Rescue Committee, trying to design and test new products and services that can help refugees and others affected by crisis. We want to first thank you for listening to our whole season, and especially the series on refugee resettlement. Uh, we would love to hear from you about how you're feeling about Displaced, the interviews. Get in touch. You can tweet, I'm at Grant M. Gordon. And I'm at Agra Murthy. And you can email us at displacedatrescue.org. Leave a review for us. Help us grow on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on Displaced, we're speaking to Ahmed Hussein, the Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship for the Government of Canada. And we're going to be talking to him particularly about the very unique way in which Canada resettles refugees through private sponsorship. Individual citizens coming together to bring refugees over and basically pay for the costs of that over the first year of their, their, their new life in Canada. This last interview with Minister Hussein is a fitting end to a series that's focusing on resettlement uh, because we began it really framing and understanding the existential threat that refugee resettlement faces with the U.S. rescinding its role. And in this interview, we talk with a minister from the country who has actually taken up the mantle amongst these dark days to increase refugee resettlement in Canada and also help expand this around the world. Uh, these tie together really nicely and give you a sense of what a future path looks like despite some of the threats that resettlement faces today. I suspect this is going to be one of those interviews where we um, all want to move to Canada at the end of it and feel very jealous of their politics. I've already left. You've already left. I'm already on my way. <laughs> so here's Minister Hussein. Minister Hussein, welcome to Displaced. Thank you. So we want to focus today on Canada's unique model of private sponsorship, because over many decades, Canada has evolved two ways of doing refugee resettlement. One is a government route where the government chooses and pays for resettling refugees. And the other is a private sponsorship program where citizens do that. Can you say a little bit about how and why did private sponsorship emerge in Canada? Well, first of all, it's great to speak about this particular topic today, because uh, uh, in the next few weeks, we will be celebrating, uh, starting this week, the 40th anniversary of the uh, privately sponsored refugee program in Canada. Uh, it really started sort of 
in an ad hoc manner as a Canadian public response to the uh, influx of the uh, Vietnamese boat people in 1979. And no one knew how to deal with that. And, and, and Canadian uh, average citizens, churches, uh, organizations just took it up. And, and because the church had a national network, they were the ones who led the response. And that was how uh, the private sponsorship of refugees started in Canada. Uh, it's 40 years now since uh, that program came into existence. And as a result of that program, we've had uh, the sponsorship by Canadians and by Canadian NGOs and faith groups of over 330,000 people uh, above and beyond uh, the government-sponsored uh, refugee program. And when you look at the two two programs side by side, the government route and the, the private sponsorship, what kind of benefits have you seen for refugees themselves in this approach to uh, resettling refugees? There's no comparison. The, the privately sponsored refugee model uh, is is much much has much much better outcomes uh, in many ways. Number one, for the refugees, it uh, you know they have better language and employment outcomes and integration outcomes much faster because. Uh, they're not lonely, they're embraced by the community, they essentially get a second family, and they they have a whole community. It's not, you know, legally, it's, it's, the, it's the, the individual or the group of people who are sponsoring them who are responsible for the refugees. But what tends to happen in Canada, in many instances, is the, the friends of the sponsors and the neighbors and the employers and the school and everyone else really kind of gets involved in that process, in the integration process, and they rally around and embrace this new family. And, um, and therefore, uh, because they split up the, the different uh, things that need to be done to integrate this family into the community, the, com- the, 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 the new refugee family tends to do much, much better in terms of uh, integrating into the local school, finding a job, and learning the language. Um, but... There's a second benefit to the private sponsorship model, which is that it's equally, if not more, transformative for the sponsors and their community. And one of the things that uh, we've learned from this program is that uh, Canadians who have sponsored a refugee or a refugee family tend to be very much um, transformed by the experience. They they essentially become... uh, very, very strong advocates for refugees after that experience. And they tend to sponsor again and again. So, you know, it becomes a repeat experience and they become big advocates for refugees because for them, refugees are no longer an abstract issue to debate, but actually real human beings who are now essentially part of their family. I want to follow up and um, ask a, a little bit more about kind of the political effects of sponsorship on sponsors that, that you were just talking about, because I think it's a huge question for us here in the United States, as well as globally right now, about how to essentially build broader constituencies for refugees and, and for resettlement. Yes. And yep. one one question I have is how you think about how those impacts on families actually ladder up into political change. Because when you look at just the number of uh, resettled refugees that are coming in and then the number of sponsors they have, there's a few hundred thousand over many years, which which is a large number, but likely in kind of large countries like Canada, or if you were to replicate this in the US, wouldn't shift electoral politics fundamentally. But it'd be 
curious to hear more about your reflections on how the sponsorship program has affected sponsors to actually really fundamentally change politics. Well, so let's do the math. Uh, Over 330,000 refugees have been sponsored in the last 40 years. Each of those 300,000 refugees had uh, a group of five people or an organization in Canada that sponsored them. When you do the the math, you can. We're actually talking about a few million sponsors, in uh, from coast to coast to coast. So it's it's actually a very very large uh, constituency, very powerful, very uh, uh, informed about these issues. I always say that uh, when the average Canadian uh, watches uh, uh, horrific images from Syria or somewhere somewhere else. Uh, their responses to that are not any different from uh, the average American uh, responding to those images. You know, there's a human uh, element in all of us which, you know, feels sympathy for anyone in that situation and and essentially wants to do something. The difference is the Canadian can then get up the next day and uh, and seek four other Canadians and sponsor uh, someone from Syria. The American average citizen cannot do that because they don't have that structure. There's no framework to sponsor refugees. So I think that makes a a huge difference. I also think that, you know, to think that this is transformative just for the sponsors themselves is, 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 is too narrow because the, the privately sponsored refugees and their life story and their impact on the community is felt by people beyond that immediate circle, so the schools, the employers, and the local community. Some of the privately sponsored refugees end up settling in in remote communities, in smaller communities, and and their impacts are felt uh, much more on the ground. Uh, Their their children revitalize schools that were on the verge of being closed. So in in many ways, you you have this, uh, you have so many communities across the country who point to, you know, a family that they sponsored or a number of families that they sponsored as a point of pride for, 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 the, uh, for, the, for the municipality, for the small town. And that's the first thing that they'll tell you. They'll say, oh, we sponsored a family. Uh, so it, it's become more of a national uh, ethos to sponsor people. And, and, and I think the Syrian refugee uh, initiative, the Syrian response was... Um, I would say the climax of private private sponsorship in Canada. And one of the elements of private sponsorship that's very interesting is that, as you say, the sponsors themselves get to choose who to uh, resettle, and yes. that uh, and potentially that can increase the quality of the match because they have information about uh, that refugee, and and it might be therefore more successful. But it does potentially create another risk, doesn't it? That refugees, not the, the most vulnerable refugees, may be not selected. Is that something that you've seen? Born out, and how have you managed that risk? That, that's a very good question. Number one, the government-sponsored refugee program takes care of the most vulnerable, because there it's really about uh, vulnerability is the only uh, thing that we look at. In the in the private sponsorship uh, arena, there's two groups of sponsors. You can, you know, group a group of five individual Canadians can sponsor, or an organization. So there's organizations out there in Canada that have sponsored thousands of people. And for those organizations, they don't really look at family ties or knowledge of the person. They just they just basically sponsor refugees. 
you know, the Catholic Church uh, in a, in a very Italian Canadian neighborhood will sponsor refugees from Burma, who they you know, and and they wouldn't know anything about Burma. So so there you go. You know, one element of this refugee resettlement process is that groups have to come together, as you said, a group of five, uh, possibly linked to a religious organisation. And when we've been studying Canada and looking at what we can learn, one question that's been raised is what about perhaps the individuals who want to come forward and sponsor refugees, but may be not part of a church or may not have a a ready-made group to come forward? Have you thought a bit about how you can mobilize individuals and, and harness them? Or are you actually trying to screen out that kind of contribution because you want groups that are already self-organized and, and therefore more able to confidently resettle refugees? No, they don't have to be self-organized. We literally, if someone is really passionate about sponsoring a refugee family, we ask that person to go and get four other Canadians. It's that simple. Or, or permanent residents, actually. It doesn't have to be a, a named group that has an office and so on. No, five Canadians or five permanent residents of Canada can simply get together. And we've seen situations in which, for example, and I'll use Eritrea again, someone in Canada who cares passionately about Eritrean refugees or, or refugees from Myanmar, uh, they, they would then go to their neighbors or their colleagues at work or school and say, please join me. I, I want to sponsor this family. And then it becomes like a... Uh, a group effort. And the reason why we like the group is because it's not just about the money. Yes, I agree. One person can financially sponsor. If we're just talking about money, yes, one person can, can lift the burden. The problem is it's not just about the money. It's about when the, the family lands, we want out of the five people, one of them to uh, help the kids with, with their school and their homework and the other one to help one of the spouses find a job or the other one to open a business and the other one, one of the group members to help the family find an, a house or an apartment to rent. So so we, we need that division of labor and we feel that five is the, is the right number. One person, it would overwhelm them. They can't do all of that. So we really want these people to not just financially support them, but to work alongside these new refugees uh, throughout that year to, to help them in the integration process. And, and because it's five people, you don't really feel as much weight on your shoulders because, you know, you split the load. And we find that because it becomes a pleasant experience, most of the sponsors end up uh, sponsoring a new family after the, the, the time period is over. And I ask them, when I travel around the country I, and I meet sponsors as recently as two weeks ago, I, I asked them, I said, you know, would you do this again? And they said, yes, actually, I'm doing it again. I'm doing it again. And a lot of times what they'll do is they'll sponsor relatives of the family that they just sponsored, or they'll sponsor a brand new family. Let me just ask a follow-up question on kind of the first point on organization. Um, and this may reveal my biases uh, coming from America, where people are atomized and don't talk to their neighbors and have weak social networks. Um, but I, I just think again about a lot of the individuals who um, may want to participate, but uh, aren't in a social network that where they can find another few people or have different preferences than their friends. So I think about myself, like if I wanted to support a refugee for resettlement, which I absolutely would, despite the fact that a lot of the people I know are kind of pro-social justice, I don't think I could find a group of four people. Now, there may be a bunch of people who I You're just I revealing that you have no friends, know. Grant. <laughs> yeah. My, sorry for throwing my friends under the bus. I hope you're not actually no, no, listening no, to this. Okay. But, um, but 
I just think about different ways to connect with individuals who may want to participate in resettlement, but who I who I don't know um, personally um, or don't know through institutions. And I guess that's kind of the the part of the population that we're we're thinking about how we leverage that. And so curious I, to get I can answer that. I can answer you, that. Yeah. There's two there's two ways I'm going to answer that. First of all, I want to give a shout out to a small slice of the refugee resettlement programs that exist in Canada that, that is not widely known. There's a, a program called the Blended Program. It's, it's a blend mm-hmm. of the government and the private sponsors. So this is a program that identifies very vulnerable refugees and the costs of resettlement and sponsorship are split between uh, the government, UNHCR, and private sponsors. So there's also that, number one. Number two, one of the things that we want to do is harness individuals like you uh, and say, look, you don't have to go and find four other people. You don't have to go find an organization. If you really care about this issue and you, you you don't have a family connection to these refugees, one of the things that you can do is help and essentially become an in-Canada sponsor informally for a group a family or a, a, a single refugee who's come through the government sponsorship model because they tend to be more lonely, they tend to have less embrace in the community, they tend to have a much harder journey, A, because they overall tend to be more vulnerable, but also because they don't have the supports that uh, the private sponsors have. So one of the things that I've been trying to do as as a minister is talk to a lot of the Canadians who are, scrambling to find a family to say, wait a second, instead of sponsoring a family from somewhere else, how about helping someone who's already here? And I can tell you, um, in my own journey, as a 16-year-old refugee in Toronto, it was very, very difficult to figure out just basic things, like how to open a bank account, how to mail a letter to my mother, how to wash clothes in a in a washing machine. I had never seen a washing machine in my life. And I had to embarrassingly ask strangers. Now, if I had a Canadian sponsor who was matched with me, who would walk with me and tell me where to get a donut or how to buy a cup of coffee, I would appreciate that because I had no idea how to do those things. And it was, you know, I know you take this for granted, but for a newcomer, it's extremely, extremely challenging, especially when you have a refugee background and you have no social network. So we're trying to encourage Canadians who are very generous, who want to sponsor refugees to say, how about taking care of the ones who have landed through the government uh, route and, and, and connect with them? And how, how about if we connect you with those people? And presumably the ask of those particular sponsors isn't particularly financial. It's much more about their time and effort. Yes, yes. And that gets to another question which I had, which is how big is the financial burden for sponsors? Because... I think, as I understand it, three out of the five who sponsor a, a refugee coming in have to contribute financially. Do you find that there are lots of people who want to contribute but maybe don't necessarily have the financial means, and how do you accommodate so, them? So it, the good news is, first of all, the, the legal uh, requirement is that you have to sp- support the single refugee or the family because you, you don't have to s- sponsor a family. You can just sponsor one refugee. It, it, the commitment is for one year, so you have to su- you have to pay their rent uh, for one year and support them uh, with their living costs, like food and and buy them a winter jacket, that kind of thing. The good news is more than half the private-sponsored refugees 
work are working in the first year. So if the person's already working, then you know there's less of a burden on the sponsors. Again, even there I find that the most crucial supports are, are, are the non-monetary stuff. It's helping with the language, helping the young children with homework and adjusting to school, helping the father or the mother find a job. It's those little social connections. I wanted to pull around back on the on the BVOR uh, system that you were mentioning before, which was launched in 2013. And it's got those two unique elements that you mentioned, um, both in terms of blending the financing to, to have the state se- uh, step yep. in and support there, as well as um, looking towards UNHCR recommendations. Um, and so it's changing that kind of matching function. A, f- a few years into the program, what are your major lessons learned from setting up this mechanism? I'll be very honest. Uh, one of my uh, one of the things I'm disappointed about is that the BVOR allocations are never used every year, and I, I, like it, it. Sorry, when you say they're not when, simply, they, when you say they're not used, just explain that to me. They're not used uh, to the full extent. Uh, the, all the spaces are not used every year, and and that's my concern because those are resettlement spaces that that need to be used, and I I just think it's because a lot of people are simply not aware of the BVOR program. Right, so they're not used because not enough private sponsors are coming forward to take up these slots. Is that right? Yes, because because uh, part of part of it is because people just don't know much about the BVO program, and then another part of it is also some private sponsors would like to have more control over who they're bringing, and the BVO program is not like that. You just get who you get. You you don't get to choose. You 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 the BVO program has it has an inventory of refugees who are ready to be sponsored and you don't get to select you you basically sponsor who you're told to sponsor by the UN referral and one final question on how refugees are chosen for resettlement and this time um in relation to the government program so you know in, in the US i know that a large number of afghan refugees were prioritized for resettlement during the the war with afghanistan and so you do find different countries and prioritizing different nationalities. How does Canada think about which nationalities to prioritize? First of all, we have immigration levels that we have. We set targets every year for all our immigration levels in the economic stream, uh, the people who are bringing skills and filling unfilled jobs, and then the family class, people who are reuniting with their family members, spouses, children, parents, grandparents. And then we have uh, spaces for refugees, government, private, and then BVOR. And then also space for asylum seekers who become uh, who 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 eventually are found to be refugees by our local uh, immigration refugee board. So as we set those targets, there's years where things uh, there's exceptional years, and I, I I can particularly point to 2016. 2016 was an exceptional year. We didn't go by the regular numbers. We opened the the gates, and that was to respond to Syria. And if you look at uh, the private sponsored uh, numbers and the refugee numbers, they were very high. But normally, uh, we set those targets. We select, we don't select refugees. We we work with the UNHCR. We have a rough allocation. We, so, uh, you know, based on the annual number of refugees we take, we divide that number equally between Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And that becomes the, the overall allocation. And then the refugees who then we select are based on the referrals that we get from UNHCR. 
And there's only one single uh, criteria, which is vulnerability. Now, in that process, as we go through the year, we may quietly tell UNHCR that they should also prioritize, for example, LGBTQ2 refugees, or we may set up a separate program that is temporary to respond to a particular need at a particular time. So, for example, we set up a, a program uh, to resettle 1,400 uh, survivors of ISIS Daesh atrocities, 85% of whom were Yazidi women and girls. That is because Parliament passed a resolution, a, a unanimous resolution, calling on the government to do that as a as an immediate response to the genocide committed by ISIS against the Yazidi people. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in a second with Minister Hussein. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. You're listening to Displaced and we're talking to Minister Ahmed Hussein. It's been great to see Canada taking an increasingly large role in refugee resettlement, particularly as the United States has has stepped away from uh, its its position as a leader in this space. When you look at kind of the numbers and the target setting that you were just talking about, yes. what do you think are the primary constraints that Canada faces in further expanding the resettlement program, particularly on the government side? Yes, a very good question. So for Canada... Everyone that arrives in Canada through our immigration system, whether it's a refugee, an economic immigrant, or a family uh, reunification person, all of them have access to uh, settlement and integration services. These are language training and uh, uh, services to help them find a job, orientation services, and so on. And these are costly services. We make, uh, we make investments to these people because we feel that uh, giving them the right tools to succeed is, is also in the best interest of Canada because then when they succeed, Canada succeeds. But because of that, because of those investments, we have to also be careful about um, the absorption capacity because we have over 500 NGOs that we fund that provide these language courses and the employment support and so on. So we have to, we do increase our government has doubled the number of resettled refugees that we accept, but we have to do gradual increases. We cannot do radical uh, increases there. We have ambitious targets. Uh, for example, over the next uh, three years, we'll have more than one million people land in Canada as permanent residents. But if you look over the horizon, you know, in, in 10 or 20 yeah. years' time, what do you think is a credible ambition for Canada in terms of resettling refugees? What's the highest you can imagine? 
I, I, first of all, I, I think we'll continue to increase as long as we're in, in, in office. We will always continue to increase the numbers. And I'm proud of that fact. Every year we increase the numbers. Uh, I think, but I don't think Canada can take everyone. So what's the second best option? The second best option is to make sure that other countries share the burden of refugee resettlement. And how do we do that? One, we do that by sharing our private sponsorship model with other countries. And we've done that with Australia, New Zealand, uh, Ireland, Germany, uh, and uh, Belgium, and the UK. They now have private-sponsored refugee programs. There's three uh, Latin American countries that, that are in the process of learning about this program, uh, Argentina, Chile, and Brazil. And they've expressed keen interest on, in adopting this program. In addition to that, we hope to transcend governments and provide how-to guides on how to, pro how to do private sponsorship to civil society around the world by developing kits in different languages. And, uh, and also to really look at how we can work better with, with developing countries that are doing the lion's share of refugee resettlement. I'm thinking about you know Turkey and Lebanon, Jordan, Kenya, Ethiopia, places like that. How can we, uh, how can we have... A po policies in place to encourage those countries to continue to be generous, but to also help them to remain resilient. Because a country like Jordan, when they, you know, a country of 9 million that already had water shortages is hosting 1.2 million Syrian refugees. That's very hard. And so how can we help Jordan uh, in other ways through our trade policy and through our security policies and other and foreign aid policies and development policies uh, finally, I, I must say, since we're talking about levels, there's a very interesting initiative by uh, Talent Beyond Boundaries, uh, speaking to the government of Canada about how to harness the the skills, uh, the, 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 the contributions of skilled refugees. So right now under our immigration system, if a refugee is in a refugee camp somewhere, the only immigration stream that they can use to get to Canada is to apply through the refugee stream. Now, that's, that's, uh, that's not right because it's, first of all, it's a very, so it's, it's a small number relative to the larger immigration numbers that we have. But secondly, it takes away from the fact that many, many refugees can compete in our other immigration streams, in the economic and skilled immigration streams uh, with everyone else. So why not give them that chance? And I think if we, if we, the discussions are early days, but if we were able to do that, that would dramatically um, increase the number of refugees who would come to Canada, but, but it would also include many, many skilled refugees who so happen to be refugees but are not coming to Canada as refugees. They're competing uh, to, to, against other skilled immigrants to, to settle in Canada. So they just happen to be refugees, but they're actually being selected uh, for their work experience or their skills or, or, or their back or their potential to succeed in Canada. And that's something that we're exploring. And if that were to happen, that would really, really increase uh, dramatically the number of refugees that uh, find a home in Canada. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting to look at just different ways of creating paths and complementary paths for um, refugees who may have skills or different profiles to come in. 
But looking at the intersection of those countries actually kind of gets at the uh, an interesting question around the constraints. And so as you're talking about um, the constraints to growth that the government of Canada faces as a function of the services that can be provided and grown effectively – Private sponsorship comparatively is a much more flexible system because you have sponsors coming in who are providing the financing and that has the ability to kind of flex up um, as just a function of demand. But one of the things that I think about is, you know, while most refugees who come in through private sponsorship do well, some do indeed fall through the cracks. Sponsorship groups don't work out. Um, You know, refugees need more help or aid than they can get if they, you know, have a health issue, for example. And then they end up relying on government services and kind of the, the social safety net. And so I guess one question is, does when you're thinking about kind of the range, the admissions range that you're looking to for private sponsorship, do you take into consideration uh, the need to potentially provide government services to some small subset who fall through the cracks? And then as it relates to other countries where we're thinking about increasing private sponsorship that may not have the type of extensive social safety net and kind of institutional capacity that a place like Canada has, yes, yes. Um, how do you think about – advocating for that, um, given given that if a refugee kind of falls through the cracks, there's maybe no bear to catch them? Very good questions. Uh, first of all, we're dealing with that first question, uh, that first challenge in, in two different ways. One is we are um, increasing uh, the ability to get training. Not everyone can be a sponsor. Not everyone knows what the, uh, the obligations are before they get into the space. So we're increasing the ability for the... Um, for the sponsorship agreement holders to provide training, to provide uh, more awareness of the obligations. Having said that, uh, they're never in a in a in a bad financial space because the sponsors are are supposed to uh, make the the financial commitment before they even uh, sponsor. So there's monies that are put in trust accounts and so on. So that that rarely happens, if at all. Uh, on the second point, uh, what happens to the to the other countries? That's why uh, recently I have been uh, uh, I've had an initial meeting last year with uh, thirty uh, uh, CEOs of the of the biggest uh, private uh, companies in Canada, some of which are global uh, chains, to encourage them to get into the space. And we had a follow up meeting this year, where I said last year that. By next year, I want to see commitments. And this year, we had uh, a number of those companies stepping forward and committing to hiring refugees. And, um, and, and, I, and I appealed to them. I said, you know, hiring refugees is not an act of charity. And we were able to share with them data that showed that a company that hires refugees has less employee turnover, more employee loyalty, 11% more profits, and a better social brand. So uh, <clears throat> so why not do it? And so as a result of that, a number of the companies that came back this year committed to hiring thousands and thousands of refugees across Canada and around the world. And in, in fact, some of them have hired privately uh, refugees in places like Turkey and, and beyond. And so, so we're trying to harness the power of private sector. Private sector, one of the things we learned about the Syrian Refugee Initiative is that the private sector is really thirsty and hungry to be part of this space. But they don't know where to begin, and no one has really engaged them. And government is constrained to take money from private sector. So what we're saying is, private sector, get involved, provide in-kind support to refugees, and and provide jobs. 
the best way to integrate these people is through the workplace. You mentioned that you're having conversations with other countries and trying to encourage them to um, adopt the private sponsorship model. Yes. When, I mean, at the moment, we've got a situation where four countries, the US and Canada amongst them, are resettling 80% of all refugees globally. And there's a big gulf between the need, annual need, which I think was 300,000 refugees last year in need of resettlement and only 100,000 yeah. slots open globally. How do we build a broader coalition of countries who are prepared to do what Canada is doing? What constraints do they face and, and how are you trying to persuade them? I, I think it's all politics because, I mean, the benefits of integrating refugees and the contributions that refugees make uh, in the world uh, to host communities are, are very much researched. There's numerous studies, inc including studies made uh, produced by the OECD and other organizations. But I think there's a philosophical barrier to some of these uh, uh, political leaders uh, to, to embrace this concept. I was sitting at the UN and, and listening to some of my colleagues around the world really rail against refugees and saying refugees really don't bring much to, uh, to skills to the table. And I was just shocked because I know for a fact that that's not the case. There's an example. I met uh, a young woman in uh, Montreal who arrived in Canada. Uh, she's Armenian background. She fled Syria three years ago. She was given protection by Canada three years ago as a 19-year-old refugee. And at, at the age of 21 now, she's learning her fourth language and she's studying aerospace engineering. And this is the best part. She's already made an invention. She's produced an invention that powers, provides more power to small aircraft engines and enables them to also at the same time um, produce less emissions. So this is a 21-year-old refugee who's already made a contribution to Canada. And she's just getting started. So the, the idea that refugees don't add to the labor market, they don't add to the skills shortages, is preposterous because refugees are as diverse as everyone else. They have different uh, backgrounds and circumstances. They just happen to have fled their country of origin. So I, I really think that uh, this requires leadership. Let me give you the, another example. So in 2015, when the Canadian elections were going on, one of the leaders, of the, the, the governing party at the time said that they only had an ambition of bringing 1,000 Syrian refugees if they got into power again. The next party said 10,000. And then my leader, Justin Trudeau, said 25,000. But because he said 25,000, when we got into office, Canadians responded by adding another 15,000 privately sponsored refugees. So the total number ended up being 40,000, even though the government commitment was only 25,000. So it, it does take leadership. It does take leadership in some of these well-off countries to say, no, we should uh, share the responsibility of, of, of refugee resettlement. There's no reason why Turkey can resettle 4 million Syrian refugees and other countries cannot do more. If Turkey can do that, we, we can certainly do more. And I, I, I believe it really takes political leadership to do this. But it's also about getting beyond the political leaders and showing small communities the benefits of private sponsorship. There's something about human beings that, that wants to contribute to the well-being of the, of the other. And I think it's important for political leadership to provide that outlet. Uh, Germans, Australians, Americans, everyone is as generous as Canadians. It's just that they lack that framework. And 
I think the job of those political leaders is to provide that that outlet for generosity. And one, one of the things that I find slightly baffling about this all is that you've seen large-scale migration into many European countries at a, you know, yes. hundreds of thousands of people coming in. Um, and that has created, obviously, a backlash in, in many places. But we're often talking about only resettling five or 10,000 refugees. If, if 30 countries did that, we'd be able to bridge the gap between that 300,000 annual need and the 100,000 that are, that are coming in last year. So yes. it, it doesn't feel like a big lift to get 30 countries to commit to 5,000 refugees coming in a year. How, no, it doesn't. It's how, not much, yeah. How, so, I mean, how do we do that? So when you're talking to your peers, your other ministers, and presumably you're pushing this case, what's, what's the reaction? I think, first of all, I'm really, really happy to have had the opportunity to sign the UN Global Compact on Refugees and, and Migration. I think finally, the world is starting to have a dialogue and a framework to have that dialogue for a global phenomena, which is migration. So, so that's one. And, and, and just showing the, the, showing the studies that, that show the, uh, the benefits to the host community, to the labor market, to demographics. Uh, we all have uh, aging populations with very low birth rates and, uh, and, and e- economies that need workers, that need skills, an injection of skills and workers and people to prop up our tax base, to be able to pay for our generous uh, social programs, our retirement benefits and our health care. We can't do that without having um, a, an ambitious immigration program, which also includes a segment that provides protection to the most vulnerable. And uh, uh, I can tell you, in Canada, the people who the private sponsorship model started with, the Vietnamese uh, boat people, they are here and their descendants, and they are now sponsoring other refugees. One of my proudest moments was sitting in my office, receiving a delegation of Vietnamese boat people and their descendants who are proud Canadians. And they said, we just came to see you so that you can help us uh, figure out how to sponsor new refugees. I mean, that's a, that's amazing. And I, I wish more societies could have that opportunity. Uh, I, I think the Global Compact will allow Canada and, and like-minded countries to have that conversation with, with, those, uh, with those other countries. I think there needs to be the setting up of an international conference, kind of like uh, the one for global climate change, where we can name and shame people and, and, and have a peer review mechanism and have um, a system where we hold each other to account. There's another uh, initiative in Jordan where Jordan has a very healthy textile industry. So to encourage the Jordanians to continue to host these refugees, the EU had a preferential trade agreement where uh, if certain designated textile factories hired a percentage of Syrians, together with Jordanians, the textiles from those factories would have preferential access into the European market. We need those kinds of innovative approaches because, again, not every refugee can be resettled in the West. Uh, So how can we encourage these other countries to remain in the game and to uh, continue to be more generous? Minister Hussein, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. You're most welcome. Thank you very much for for your in-depth interview and your uh, attention to this really important topic. That was Ahmed Hussein, the Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship for the Government of Canada. If you want to hear any more on the topics that we discussed today in this episode or the broader series on refugee resettlement or everything that we've ever talked about on Displaced, check out our show notes at www.rescue.org. 
Also check this out. The Vox Media Podcast Network is conducting a listener survey to better serve you. It takes about five minutes and we'd love your feedback. Take the survey at voxmedia.com forward slash pod survey. And remember, you can and should tweet us at Grant M. Gordon and at Argora Murthy and email us to at displaced at rescue.org. Next week, we will be changing our focus of the series and looking at climate change and how it's shaping displacement. Climate change is starting to generate a whole new wave of climate-induced migration, displacement, and conflict. Understanding how shifts in climate are actually shaping these dynamics is really crucial to thinking about how we can manage and tackle the future of displacement. We were worried that we were leaving you on too optimistic a note with uh, Minister Hussain, so we want to get really depressing and remind you that it's all going to get much worse. You're welcome. At Vox Media, Displace is produced by Megan Cunane. Our engineer is Jelani Carter with extra help from Jarrett Floyd, and Golda Arthur is our senior producer. Since you've last heard from us, Golda Arthur had told us to explicitly target Megan Cunane for always putting her feet up and taking her socks off during tapings. It's very weird. And Nishat Krua is the executive producer of audio. And at the IRC, Anna Fewer is our researcher. Special thanks to Alex Bandea and Natalie Sikorsky and Ben Moskovitz. Thank you for listening and see you next week. The IRC crew always wears their socks. <laughs>